I would like people to recognize that Russian cuisine has all these really exciting flavors from the intensity of having to preserve things. So you cure fish, ferment bread to turn it into kvass, you ferment grain to make alcohol, you brine cucumbers and you brine mushrooms and you make beautiful pickles. Those also give a, a pungency to the cuisine. It's, it's not bland. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. Remember, there's never been a better time to support independent bookstores. Many, like our friends at Omnivore Books in San Francisco, are happy to ship cookbooks to you right now. It's also a perfect time to join an online cookbook club, diving into a new or beloved cookbook with folks around the country. You can find more info on how to support authors and bookstores, as well as which books are being featured in this month's cookbook clubs on our Instagram page at Salt and Spine. You just heard from today's guest, cookbook author Dara Goldstein. Now in today's show, Salt and Spine producer Madeline Forbes is sitting down with Dara to talk about her latest cookbook, Beyond the North Wind, Russia in Recipes in Lore. For this book, Dara journeys 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle to the Kola Peninsula, which she describes as one of the literal ends of the Earth. The next stop is the North Pole. She goes there to rid herself of any outside influence and to explore the true complexity of Russian cuisine during their notoriously harsh winters. Dara's journey allowed her to discover what's at the heart of Russian cuisine, whole grains, fermented foods, and unique flavors such as sea buckthorn and fireweed leaves. The recipes in her book offer a refreshing take on old techniques. Think raspberry kvass, homemade farmer's cheese, Russian hand pies, and buckwheat croutons. In a cookbook that's both inventive and inviting, Dara truly captures the landscape of Russian cuisine, both past and present, through her elevated storytelling and desire to shed the stereotypes of Russian cuisine. By bringing its history, people, and geography to the forefront, Dara gives the reader an in-depth understanding of how Russian food came into existence and how it has evolved to what it is today. Dara, of course, is also the author of Fire and Ice, Classic Nordic Cooking, and she's the founding editor of Gastronomica, the Journal of Food and Culture. In today's show, producer Madeline Forbes will be talking with Dara about Russian cuisine before and after the Soviet Union, about seeking and preparing food during Russia's notoriously intense winters, and about Russian hospitality and its restaurant scene and landscape today. So let's head now to a local cafe in San Francisco, where Dara Goldstein joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Dara. Hi, Madeline. Thanks for coming uh, and chatting with me in this lovely cafe in San Francisco. To start, wow, Beyond the North Wind. What a beautiful book. The introduction was just so propelling and captivating and just explaining your journey and story about, you know, why Russian cuisine. I just want to hear a little bit more about, you know, what the process of writing this book looked like and why Beyond the North Wind. Okay. So people ask me how long it took me to write this book, and yeah. I say 50 years. 50. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Which is a very glib answer. But the truth is, I've been thinking about Russia for 50 years. I wow. first started studying Russian when I entered college, okay. and it 
kept building. I went to the Soviet Union for the first time in 1972. Oh, wow. Which is a very long time ago. So I've seen a lot of changes. Yeah. And it's Russia again. You know, there were 70 odd years of Soviet rule, but it has returned to something that had been suppressed mm. during the Soviet era. And my very first cookbook, which I published in 1983, mm -hmm. uh, it's still in print, called A Taste of Russia, mm -hmm. was looking at Soviet and then a Soviet food and then very longingly at the foods of the czars, you know, okay. from the 19th century with yeah. a French overlay. And I realized that it doesn't reflect the reality of how people eat in Russia now hmm. or how they've been eating for a thousand years. So that's what I want to do with this book is to try to get a handle on what the elemental flavors of Russia are. Okay, amazing. And would you say it's kind of like a sequel to A Taste of Russia or completely its own entity? It's completely its own entity. Okay. But if you go back and read that, then I think it segues nicely into this one. But it's not like you have to read it to be able to understand this because this starts in a certain way at the beginning. Yeah. Um, back in what the 10th century, mm. I guess. Yeah. When Russia accepted Christianity and became a nation. Great. And in terms of, you know, the layout of this book, uh, it seems to be very project oriented. You have everything from like brined tomatoes to pickles to homemade farmer's cheese. I mean, what was the thinking behind that when you were trying to decide what recipes to include in this book? And, you know, why did you decide to go the more project oriented route instead mm -hmm. of like, you know, appetizers and salads and obviously Russian cuisine's different, but yeah, just wanted you to expand. On I that. didn't want to organize the book in the traditional way. I, this is my sixth cookbook and mm. it just felt kind of old to me and a little bit boring. That idea of soup to nuts. Yeah. <laughs> Not that anyone's really eating nuts at the end of the meal any longer, <laughs> but, uh, I thought I would start with the building blocks, mm. the way people build meals the flavors that you put together to create a dish. Mm. So it's important to me to show, for instance, where I live, I can't get Russian-style farmer's cheese. I can't necessarily run out and get beautiful half-sour pickles. Mm. And so they're not hard to make. They're super easy. And most of the recipes in this book actually are pretty simple because I don't have the patience generally to spend long, long days in the kitchen yeah. making something. <laughs> so I wanted to allow people who don't have access to those products, uh, I want to give them recipes so they could start with those. Great. Um, and in terms of recipes, do you have any recommendation on where to start? Yeah. So start with the vodka. The vodka. <laughs> as the Russians do. No, there are some amazing recipes for home infused vodkas. Okay. My favorite being the horseradish, but there's also... I saw that one. It looked so it's good. It's so good. And all you do is drop peeled fresh horseradish wow. into vodka and let it infuse depending how potent the horseradish is. You let it infuse 24 to 48 hours and you okay. have this awesome drink. Wow. And do you just drink that straight or do you mix it into a cocktail? Oh, I mean, you could. Yeah. It would be, it's really good in a Bloody Mary, but Ooh, Russian style is great. to drink it straight in shots right out of the freezer. Oh my gosh. And there's a pepper vodka, tarragon vodka, but you never drink vodka without having appetizers. And so there okay. are a lot of uh, the zakuski, which are the mm. little bites in Russian. Okay. That, that's sort of the highlight of any Russian meal because you have this lavish spread 
of dozens of dishes often, all meant to peak the, uh, to whet the appetite, to peak the palate. So another one of the recipes I really like in here, I have pickles that, you know, are a little bit more complicated to make, mm -hmm. but there's a 20 minute pickle that you just take the little Persian cucumbers, okay. the little mini ones, cut them into quarters, put them into a, a Ziploc bag with some salt, uh, minced garlic, dill, and the secret ingredient being a tablespoon of vodka. Oh my gosh. Sort of massage them a little bit so that the ingredients get distributed. Really? 20 minutes? 20 minutes on wow. the counter. Then it would be good to chill them a little bit, but you don't have to. And they're awesome. They're so good. Okay. I'll have to try those. Yeah. Start with those. Okay. Good to know. Um, and also to just go back to the beginning of the book when, you know, you're talking about you, you know, being 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle. What really resonated with me was when you were talking about being in the uh, shower room and then the <laughs> crab legs being in the pot. Yeah, I just wanted to hear more about that in terms of like, like, what was that like to see something so gigantic? <laughs> Terrifying. Yes. <laughs> like, they're like know. six feet. They're taller than I am. Wow. I mean, not that they stand up, but... Um, if you stretched out their legs, okay. they would be longer That's than incredible. I am. Yeah, they're huge. And the funny thing about them, it's the Kamchatka crab. Kamchatka. And okay. it comes from the far east of Russia on the Pacific. And in the 1960s, the Soviet scientists decided to transport these crabs to the Barents Sea, which hmm. is the region in the far uh, northwest of Russia. Okay. Up above the Arctic Circle, it borders with Norway. And so they wow. seeded these crabs there to develop an industry. And um, the joke is that the crabs escaped from the Soviet Union and went over into Norwegian waters because oh the Barents Sea <laughs> straddles both Norway and Russia. Oh, wow. And so they were all leaving the Soviet Union, <laughs> going to the West. And it was a huge ecological problem that they're still dealing with. That's interesting. Yeah. And what was your time like this past time when you visited? And you were with your husband this time around? Um, I was with my husband for a month in the summer. In the summer. And okay. And I felt, you know, this isn't really the Russian. It is the Russian experience. The summers there are just beautiful mm -hmm. and copious berries and mushrooms. And it's gorgeous herbs because there's the midnight sun. Mm. And they have such an intensity of flavor. So it's beautiful in the summer. But it's not the winter and the cold and the crystalline sparkle yeah. of the snow and the northern lights. And I really felt like for this book, I wanted to communicate that too. Yeah. And I wanted the photographer to come with me so he could capture that kind of wintertime sparkle. So that time I just went with the photographer and oh, I was just okay. in the Arctic three weeks ago uh, oh, wow. for a festival to present the book. Oh, amazing. Yeah, it was, it was wonderful. How often do you go to Russia? Every few years. Every now. few years. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, how different has it been from one time to the next? When you went, you know, back in 1972, I think you said to obviously a lot has changed, but yeah. you talk about, you know, uh, fast forward in today's day and age, it just being kind of like just such a new experience and really seeing, you know, Russia to its core and stripped down. Yeah, it. It's really exciting to me, especially if we're talking about the food scene, mm -hmm. uh, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Because during Soviet years, 
Um, there was virtually no food on the shelves. People knew how to barter. They knew how to work with the black market. Mm. So no one was really starving. There were a lot of people who didn't eat well, but there was always food on the table. Then in the immediate post-Soviet period, mm -hmm. there was an economic crash, and it was really difficult for people uh, just to get food on the table. There has been an amazing artisanal revival in the past few years. And the thing that spurred that is the invasion and annexation of Crimea in 2014. Interesting. And what had happened was the Russians got really used to all these wonderful imported cheeses mm. and imported foods from the West that they were enjoying. And suddenly the US, the EU, Canada, Australia, Norway put sanctions on food imports mm. and they didn't they weren't able to get the foods that they had come to enjoy mm. so they're very resourceful and even though russia has no tradition of uh, making aged cheeses their cheeses fresh you know cottage cheese like they started making brie and gouda and cheddar and feta and wow. they're doing it incredibly But they also looked back to their own old ways and started reviving those and resurrecting recipes that had been lost during the Soviet years. And so there's this beautiful revival. There are young people who are starting farms and organic, sustainable. It's on a small scale, but you feel something really happening. And wow. that's exciting. Yeah, that is super exciting. Oddly enough, it was to their benefit that they were arrived, a culture that was kind of dormant yeah. um, and now bringing it to life again, mm -hmm. uh, like you said, in a sustainable fashion. Uh, that serves them ultimately at the end of the day. Um, going off of that, uh, you know, you talk about ingredients, to be honest, things I have never heard of, like, or I had heard of, but had no concept of what they were, like sea buckthorn, and I think they were fireweed leaves. Yeah. I mean, what do you think? It's funny because, you know, I, I recently bought buckwheat from the grocery store and I've never had it. Oh, and I'm, I was really excited to eat it and, you know, seeing it kind of sprinkled everywhere in the cookbook. Do you think these are going to be like hot commodities on the wellness scene anytime soon? Because they offer a lot of benefits. Or what do you think of kind of, you know, these ingredients? And it's seemingly to be that there will be an explosion of them in terms of demand at some point. There should be. But I think the problem is the association with Russia mm -hmm. and just the overall American mood and feeling about Russians, mm -hmm. I don't think the same new Nordic craze mm. will translate into new Russian craze. Got it. Although it should, because uh, the basic cuisine is enormously healthy, you know, with whole grains, fermentation, with all the probiotics, a lot of cultured dairy, uh, the buckwheat, the sea buckthorn, which is like a superfood. And actually, it's used a lot. Mixologists use it a lot. Oh, wow. And make cocktails, I mean, here in the States. Okay. And I've had beautiful sea buckthorn sorbets at uh, restaurants, uh, particularly in New York City and in Boston. And I'm sure there are some in San Francisco who are using it. So you can find it if you seek it out. I mail order it. It okay. grows in Canada and in the Pacific Northwest. So I have sources in the book. You can mail order it and make the recipes with it. Great. I'm totally obsessed with it. <laughs> it's <laughs> and my favorite. And sea buckthorn, is it a berry? It's a berry. Okay. It's a golden berry, you know, sort okay. of the color of, of gold in the sun. And wow. it is filled with vitamin C, antioxidants, good fats. Wow. It's delicious. That's so cool. 
We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Dara Goldstein, author of Beyond the North Wind, Russia in Recipes and Lore. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nosrat and Alison Roman to today's guest, Dara Goldstein, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, host incredible live shows, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content, starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Salt and Spine is proud to have storytelling partners like Edible San Francisco. In the latest issue, read about how climate change is already impacting seafood in the Bay Area, and follow their website and social media for updates on how the Bay Area is responding to the coronavirus. Subscribe now to ensure you don't miss compelling stories on how San Francisco eats at edibleSanFrancisco.com. And now back to our conversation with Dara Goldstein, author of Beyond the North Wind, Russia and Recipes and Lore. You talk about hospitality a lot in the book specific to Russian culture. Um, you know, how do you think it differs than American hospitality? And uh, what are the sentiments that kind of are pulled into mm-hmm. Russian hospitality overall? Uh, what's I mean, Americans are very hospitable, too. Mm-hmm. But I think there is a, a sense of boundaries with mm-hmm. Americans and a sense of privacy. And you uh, don't necessarily feel that a guest is a gift from God, mm-hmm. as the Russians do. So hospitality is very much built into the Russian Orthodox way of being in the world. So for many years, most of Russia was a devout Russian Orthodox and it was incumbent upon you to treat guests well, to welcome people into your home. And it just became part of the, the culture in a way that wasn't necessarily tied to religion. And they also will just give you the shirt off their back. I mean, it's that much. So you go to a Russian home and you'll have this amazing dinner and then they'll want to give you gifts on top of that. Whereas in the States, it's more often the guest who will you know, bring a gift to the host. And of course, you do that in Russia too, but the host is not necessarily going to pile gifts into your arms after the meal. Got so it. It, it's more expensive, I would okay. say. And also, um, there are two words for hospitality in Russian. One mm-hmm. is simply the receiving of guests, mm-hmm. but the better word means uh, bread and salt, hmm. bread and saltness, because it's a, a noun. Okay. Bread being the most basic food for sustenance and salt once having been a luxury. So you give the guest that which will sustain them, but you also give them something that is luxurious and special. Wow, that's really cool. And in terms of the food scene, uh, as you referred to it now in Russia, like what does that landscape look like now than it was 30 years ago in terms of restaurants and bars? It's so hipster. Oh, wow. If you go to <laughs> Moscow, it is... Amazing. And even in Mormonsk, north of the Arctic Circle, there, I describe a couple of restaurants there that are extraordinary. So yeah, there's a sophistication that didn't exist before. Uh, there are all kinds of restaurants from all over the world. Mm. Um, there's sushi everywhere. <laughs> God save me from 
sushi everywhere. <laughs> I love sushi, but enough is enough. And the Russians make their own style, wow. which is not uh, just, you know, the raw fish. I have a recipe for it in the book. Uh, they tend to use whitefish, but I okay. use salmon. And you freeze a chunk of salmon and you shave it with a very sharp knife when it's frozen. Oh, wow. So the experience is you put it shaves off into a kind of curl, a spiral. Oh, wow. And you put that, you dip it in a little flavored salt, put it in your mouth, and the ice crystals explode because they hit the heat of your palate, and it's extraordinary. I think it's much more exciting than sushi. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll have to try it sometime. I'm prejudiced, of course. (laughs) I understand. And going back to the Arctic Circle, I mean, why 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle? You know, why did you choose this place specifically to, you know, quote unquote, chase the past uh, for you to ultimately write this book? So as I was thinking about this book and and trying to get to the core of what Russian cuisine is, I was doing a lot of reading, a lot of research, because that's what I do when I write my cookbooks. And I discovered that the ancient Greeks... So people like Pliny and Herodotus and mm. historian geographers had talked about a utopia mm. called Hyperborea, which means beyond the north wind. Oh, wow. And they had described how to get there, like cross the Carpathians, go over this other mountain range, cross this river, you know, turn right, then turn left at the tree or whatever. <laughs> And you get to a utopian place where there are beautiful, tall, blonde people, and the sun always shines, and it's the birthplace of technology, Mm. of human endeavor. And Apollo used to go there to winter. And Russian and Soviet geographers decided to try and pinpoint where this place might be, Mm. and decided that it was the Kola Peninsula, which is this peninsula in the Arctic, it borders with Norway way up at the top of the world. Okay. And the Vikings settled there, the tall, blonde, gorgeous people. <laughs> There's the midnight sun. Granted, it's very dark for much of the year, but at least mm. in the summer, the midnight sun. And uh, the Russian sagas tell about these towers that had captured the sun and the moon and the stars, which mm. could be early astronomy. So... I decided that that was where I would find what was elemental. Mm. And also because it's a part of Russia that hasn't, it didn't have the Mongol occupation. So there wasn't as strong an influence from the East. Uh, tourists don't really go there en masse. It didn't have the same Western influence either. Very cool. Um, and in terms of the next, you know, five to 10 years, how do you see the face of Russian cuisine changing or what do you hope to see from Russian cuisine in terms of, you know, uh, me being a Westerner dismantling the idea that it's boring and bland and whatnot? Mm -hmm. I would love for people to get over the idea that it is bland and stodgy and dull, that's meat and potatoes. Yeah. That's a Soviet artifact. Mm. Uh, there's an astonishingly um, delicious restaurant in Portland, Oregon called Kachka. Kachka. Yeah, and okay. she, uh, Bunny Morales, is doing amazing Russian food. So anyone who wants to taste the cutting edge, you don't have to go to Russia. You can just go up to Portland. Um, I would like people to recognize that Russian cuisine has all these really 
exciting flavors from the intensity of having to preserve things. So you cure fish, you uh, ferment bread to turn it into kvass, you ferment grain to make alcohol, you brine uh, cucumbers and you brine mushrooms and you make beautiful pickles, you culture dairy products, mm. you also have ingredients like horseradish and very strong mustard. <laughs> so um, those also give a, a pungency to the cuisine. It's, it's not bland. Totally. And what, what does your next journey to Russia look like or what do you hope... Uh, to get from that. Obviously, you've been quite a few times, but is there something that you've been itching to do for so long or that you want to explore further, eat, see? Yeah, there is, but it, it's a real journey. So mm. I have to give it some serious thought. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's the Russian Far East. Uh, it's another peninsula. Okay. It's Kamchatka. Kamchatka. And it's really, really Is that like the wild. crab, the Kamchatka? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is. Um, but there's amazing um, natural beauty there and it's very isolated again I love challenging places so I'm thinking about that but uh, I'm not sure it'll be anytime soon okay amazing well Dara thank you so much for your time today I'm glad you were able to join us it was fun talking to you Madeline you too and that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from Beyond the North Wind, the horseradish vodka and the 20-minute pickles. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Madeline Forbes. Salt and Spine's kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Acast.com.